book of Luke, chapter 2. That's on. We have been looking at Christmas through the lens of God's promise of a king. We saw that promise being made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We saw that promise, as it were, being preserved in advance in the book of Ruth. We saw that promise reiterated through the prophet Micah. And now we are up to the fulfillment of that great promise. Let me pray for us, and then Tiffany will read our passage. Spirit of God, we, we ask you to fill us right now. For you command us in your word to be continually filled with the Spirit and for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And so we ask you for your help right now. Fill us. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and let us leave here rejoicing greatly in you. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage is Luke 2, 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first resignation when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thank you, Tiffany. Sad but true headline. Apostrophe Society shuts down. The society dedicated to preserving the correct use of the apostrophe has closed. This is sad news, I realize. The reason they gave was, quote, ignorance 
and laziness have won. <laughs> the apostrophe society has shut down because they said ignorance and laziness related to the correct use of the apostrophe have won. People just don't care enough about the right use of the apostrophe anymore. You know, sometimes we can find ourselves, spiritually speaking, in a similar place. Sometimes we can find ourselves relating to God in a similar way, with about as much passion or joy as we may have for the apostrophe. One writer called it apathyism, to combine apathy and theism, or God. Apathyism. Apathyism is treating God like the apostrophe. It's, it's blah, it's, it's whatever, it's, it's general indifference. Can you relate to that? I was living in apathyism all day, every day at one point in my life. An apathetic atheist, I would have called myself. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're here as a, an apathetic skeptic. But maybe you find yourself here more as kind of an apathetic Christian right now. We all go through, don't we? We all go through these kinds of emotional ups and downs. Times when things that used to amaze us don't amaze us like they once did. They become familiar. They seem rote. We feel like we're going through the motions. Can you relate? It's not uncommon, is it? It's not uncommon to come down with, at times, a case of apathyism. I mean, maybe, maybe 2019 has been a hard year for you. Maybe this year has got you down. Life has got you down. Maybe for some, Christmas has got you down. I know the holidays can be very challenging for many people. Maybe that's you right now. Probably all of us can relate to some degree of apathyism at points. And Christmas comes to help us. Christmas comes to, to shake us out of our apathyism. Christmas comes with what we saw read a moment ago, good news of, of great joy. That's the claim of Christmas to you and me. That's the promise held out to us right now. When we feel indifferent, when we seem to be apathetic, there is a message that claims to be very good news that can be of great joy to you and me this morning. I want to see with you three aspects, three aspects of Christmas that refuse to be treated like an apostrophe. Three aspects of Christmas that, that refuse to allow ignorance and, and laziness to win in our hearts. Three aspects of Christmas that bring to us good news of, I trust, great joy for you and me. Let's call the first the humility of Christmas. First, the, the humility of Christmas. 
The setting that Luke provides, the inspired author, is, is one of contrasts between kings, you might say. Back in chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, you can glance back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, an angel named Gabriel surprises a young woman named Mary with some interesting news. Mary, you'll be pregnant. A child will be miraculously conceived in your womb. She's never been with a man sexually, so this is the miracle of all miracles. Understandably confusing for Mary, so the angel explains what's going on in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, basically. And notice, and the Lord God will give to him, this child, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, the background to that promise that the angel Gabriel is referencing goes back a thousand years before this point. We saw it a few weeks ago. A promise God made to Israel's great king, David. You might recall David wanted to build a house for God, a, a temple. God said, thanks, but no thanks. I'll build you a house, a dynasty. And God promised him a line of kings would come from David, including somehow they would reign before God forever. Did you notice the forever references here? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel is saying that long-awaited king from David who reigns before God forever, he's the one who's going to be in your womb, Mary. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the setting we're given for the king's arrival is another king. Did you notice? Chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The date is about 5 or 6 B.C. Yes, our calendars are a little bit off. And the Roman emperor is Caesar the August One. Caesar the Majestic, you might say, who orders a census. Let's count everyone and make sure our tax records are correct. Some things don't change, do they? Taxes have been around for a long time. But a census meant for some traveling back to your ancestral home. So this census requires a guy named Joseph to take a trip with that young lady, Mary. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, oh, by the way, who was with child. I love how God does this. It's not enough that his son would be in the line of David. He makes sure he's born in David's hometown fulfilling what we saw last week from the prophet Micah. But catch the contrast here. Catch the contrast. The Roman emperor thinks, I am shaping 
destiny when he is only a pawn being used by God to get this young couple 70 miles over to Bethlehem. The emperor says to himself, I am lord of history, reigning over the Roman Empire, while the true lord of history is entering the world as a baby. The Roman emperor is wielding his power. I'm calling for a census. Thank you. I don't care how inconvenient it is for you. While the Lord of all people enters the world with no fanfare, no army, and no parade. It is, isn't it, already something of the humility of Christmas in this contrast? And then, of course, you can't miss the humility of Christmas in the circumstances of his birth. Pick it up in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, contrast Gabriel's words to Mary about who this child will be, reigning forever, and the circumstances of his birth. The promised king of Israel, king of the universe, in fact, is laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. The king who will reign, and his kingdom has no end, has his first throne on earth, an animal's feed box. That's why tradition says he was born in a stable. Some say a cave. To be honest, no one is certain. It's possible that they are in a rather poor home, typical home, where the family share the roof or a room with the animals, the livestock. That's very possible. We don't know. But as Leon Morris puts it, we know only, we know only that everything points to poverty, obscurity, and rejection. That's the circumstance. Poverty, obscurity, oh, a hint of rejection. That's the humility of Christmas. You might say, Tab, well, what's the point? The point is that all of this is pointing to what kind of king he's come to be. The great reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century, he, he described it this way in a sermon, a Christmas sermon he gave. Track with Luther's thinking here. He says, he, this child, he comes without pomp, without violence, without estate, without property, without money, without sword and muskets. He disregards the great and mighty cities, Jerusalem the most holy, Rome the most powerful, and others of the kind, and chooses for his birthplace the poor and lowly Bethlehem. Why? So that one might judge from the very place of his birth and the circumstances of his birth, what kind of king he would be, poor before the world, but rich in spirit 
and all heavenly gifts. This humility, you might say, is showing what kind of king he's come to be. Poor before the world, but rich, friends, rich in heavenly gifts for you and me. Think about Jesus' words when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who feel weighed down right now by the frenetic activity of Christmas. Come to me, he said, and I will give you rest. Why? For I am gentle and humble at heart. The one with a humble birth invites you to respond to his humility, coming to him and finding rest for your souls. It shows you what kind of king he's come to be. Is this shaping, shaking us a bit out of our apathyism already? I hope so. Here's a second way it does so. Here's a second reason to be filled with wonder, friends. Secondly, the identity of Christmas. The, the identity of this child born at Christmas. So shepherds are out in the field. They are keeping, their, keeping watch over their flock by night. And they get quite the surprise. An angel shows up unannounced in the spotlight of God's visible majesty, this blinding light of God's glory shining around them. And they, it says the shepherds are, quote, filled with great fear. Now realize we would be as well. If an angel showed up in blinding glory from heaven, all of a sudden, you'd be filled with great fear as well. And the angels, they anticipate this problem and they try to be helpful. So in verse 10, the angel says, fear not, which I think helps not. I'm still afraid. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So for people like us experiencing at times bouts of apatheism, <laughs> bouts of spiritual indifference, here's what we need. What's so good about this news that gives us great joy? He says in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, just as Mary had done. And so the angel tells the shepherds how to identify the child, but don't miss the identity he ascribes to the child. Did you catch it? He's a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. This is the only time in the New Testament where those three titles appear all together. They appear many places, but here's the one place they appear all in one package. Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. So he's one who saves, one who rescues. And he saves because of who he is. First, he is, he is Christ, the Christ, the, the Messiah. Christ being a word that means anointed one. And if you read back in the Old Testament, you find there were many, quote, anointed ones. Anointing was 
a way to mark out someone for special service, like a priest or a king. But this, of course, is not just any king. This is the king. This is the anointed one. I was reading recently of when Jesus is challenging, challenging the religious leaders with the identity of the Messiah, referencing Psalm 110, which says of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Catch that. God saying to his son, the Messiah, you're going to prop up your feet. You're going to kick back in your lazy boy and prop up your feet upon everything that raises a rebellious hand against God and His ways, every single rebellious power, every rogue nation, every demon on the face of the earth and the devil himself, all will be a footstool for this anointed one, this King, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that title, Lord, that could be used as a sign of respect if you were to call someone a, a master. You might use that word. But when you see that term used of Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament, you should read much, much more into this term, Lord. Let me explain. Track with me, okay? The Hebrew name for God, the personal name for God, was pronounced something like Yahweh. That's the name God gave, God provided when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He said to Moses, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy. Moses is street smart enough to do that. And then he said, okay, tell me, who, what is your name? They're going to ask me when I go back to the people who sent you? What should I say is your name? God says, tell them, I am. <laughs> I just exist. I am who I am. That's his name, Yahweh, from the verb to be. It's the personal covenant name for God. And then Yahweh parts the Red Sea so his people could leave Egypt. And Yahweh routes the Egyptian army. And Yahweh feeds his people miraculously in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, here's where I want you to pay attention. Luke's, many of Luke's readers would have read the Old Testament, not in Hebrew, but in Greek. And when they translated from Hebrew to Greek, they used this word that appears for us, Lord. So ask yourself, what is Luke communicating under the inspiration of the Spirit to his first readers when he uses the word Lord, which over and over and over and over represented Yahweh? What's he saying? He's saying this is that God come in the flesh lying in a manger. Are you tracking with me? That is, friends, the reality 
the identity of Christmas. The story is told of a four-year-old who was making a drawing and her mother saw her and said, what are you drawing, dear? And the four-year-old said, I'm drawing a picture of God, mommy. And the mother rightly said, honey, no one knows what God looks like. And the child said, when I'm done with my picture, they will. <laughs> now, when you look at Jesus Christ, in a sense, you see what God looks like. No, not the paintings with the long, flowing blonde hair. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when you look in the pages of Scripture and you see Jesus and His power when He's walking on water or when He stills a raging storm with a word, peace be still, or when He feeds thousands miraculously with a few loaves of bread and fish, you're seeing Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, come in the flesh. Or when you're seeing Jesus' love and mercy, when you're seeing Him heal the sick and give sight to the blind and receive the outcast and the sinner, you're seeing Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, come in the flesh. And when you see Jesus' holiness and righteous justice, clearing the temple area with a whip, with, with righteous anger in His eyes, you're seeing Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, come in the flesh. You see, friends, Christmas makes the invisible God visible to us fully God and fully man. The, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, retaining all the qualities of divinity. Okay, don't read Philippians chapter 2 wrongly that he somehow emptied himself of the qualities of deity. Second person of the Godhead, retaining all the qualities of divinity, asleep in a manger. The one who fills all things. The one, the book of Hebrews tells us, sustains the universe moment by moment with the word of his power. Carries the universe along, keeping it in existence moment by moment by the word of his power. That one is wrapped in swaddling cloths. Can you get your mind around this? Do you see why Christmas is far too great to be treated as a mere apostrophe? Or blah? Or indifference? Why it's good news of great joy? But why has He come? Why has He come? We've hinted at this, but let's see it in the text. Thirdly, the peace of Christmas. We've seen the humility of his arrival. We've seen his identity as Savior, Christ, the Lord. Thirdly, the peace. Verse 13. And suddenly, there was with the angel 
a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So suddenly the heavenly choir shows up, a multitude of angels show up praising God. Notice they are not apathetic in the least. They are praising God and they are called a heavenly host. You could almost say a heavenly army. Now catch the, I think, a little bit of irony here. Because this army shows up announcing peace. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we generally think of the word peace, at least I do, as a kind of emotional peace we experience. An emotional peace, a, a feeling of peace in our hearts. And that's a good thing. But the peace being announced in verse 14, it's far more profound. And certainly can bring to you that emotional peace. But it's far more objective. This is the, the healing of strife. The healing of division and, and estrangement caused by human sin and evil. You, you know what this is like in any relationship. I'm sure you've had moments where you have sinned against a friend, a relative. You've said something you shouldn't have said. You've, you've done something that was unkind, unloving. And so in that moment you experience what? Some degree of distance, maybe a coolness, from your spouse, some degree of estrangement, you might say, in the relationship. And so, of course, you go to that person and you acknowledge where you were wrong. I should not have said this. Would you please forgive me? And hopefully they are able to forgive you and you transact forgiveness and there is reconciliation. There is peace restored between you. That's the kind of peace in view. But it's peace between us and God. Reconciliation. Now you might say, yeah, but Tab, there's no strife between me and God. There's not a problem between me and God. Oh, but left to ourselves, there is. There is. The, the Christian apologist philosopher Francis Schaeffer had an interesting illustration. He said, imagine if we put a tape recorder and we hung it around a baby's neck and it recorded every thought that child would have growing up and every wayward thought, every thought hidden in secret that we don't want anyone to know for the rest of their lives. Imagine that tape recorder was around your neck just in the last week. And imagine we then had the recording transcribed and I said to you, next Sunday we're going to put the transcription on the screen and all the thoughts you had over the last week, the thoughts you had in secret about the person who's annoying you or what have you, that person in traffic you didn't like who cut you off, it's all going to be put on the screen. And would you come next Sunday? I, I wouldn't be here. Well, God sees them all. 
and you know, we're morally culpable for all of it. And that, that's just scratching the surface, isn't it? But friends, Christmas is about this king, this anointed one. God come in the flesh as Savior, one who saves, one who rescues, such that all the things we've done wrong, all the things we've, we've said and thought and done we shouldn't have, and indeed the sinful condition in which we're born into, all of that is paid in full on the cross as this Savior hangs there, and then He rises from the dead, the tomb is empty, showing that His payment was more than enough for all of it. For all who believe, that's the peace. You see, it's very important that you connect, friends, Christmas with Good Friday and Easter. Don't separate those things. Don't separate the birth of Christ from the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's all one package together. It's all a package of good news, of great joy. The baby came to die and rise for our sins. And he didn't, he didn't merely die for your disobedience. He lived for your obedience. He obeyed where you and I have not. In fact, it's interesting, verse 21 is how the passage ends. And it almost seems anticlimactic, just sort of a tack on here, but it's very significant. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, as the law of Moses had prescribed the law of God given through Moses, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Theologically, that's a very important statement, friends. That's saying he came under the law of God to fulfill that law. He came to complete all that you cannot. He came to obey in all the ways you cannot and will not. So He dies for your disobedience. He atones for your disobedience. He provides a payment, a ransom for your disobedience. And He obeys in all the ways you cannot to credit with you His perfect obedience. He's a Savior. Come to bring you peace. Reconciliation with God. And then when he returns, the entire cosmos will experience his peace. Until then, he holds out this Christmas peace, reconciliation for all who believe. Notice with me the responses here. Notice with me the responses to this first Christmas. The angels leave. The shepherds who were astounded by the heavenly choir, they say, I think we better go check this out. We better see what's up. And so verse 16, we pick it up, verse 16. They went with haste. <laughs> yeah, we would too, right? They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered, wondered at what the shepherds told them. Verse 19, but Mary, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She ponders what the shepherds say. She thinks about it. She takes it in, takes it to heart. As James Edwards says, Mary here becomes a model of faith. 
kind of a model of faith. She is taking them in, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds go away, praising God. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard and seen. Isn't that the intended effect, friends? Not just 2,000 years ago, but today, for you and me right now, for people who struggle sometimes with apathyism, for people sometimes who can think of God with the same level of excitement as the right use of an apostrophe, for people who have ups and downs emotionally and go through hard things. We ponder them in our hearts. We consider how this really is good news of great joy. And we leave glorifying and praising God. That's the takeaway. Ponder and praise. Ponder and praise. And I might insert another P, pray. <laughs> Ponder it. Pray as I did this week. Lord, let this be good news again in my soul. In my heart, let this be great news of great joy again in my soul. And then I will leave here praising. Friends, ponder it. Pray and praise this Christmas because of the humility you see. The King come in the most humble way to bring you heavenly gifts. Because of the identity of Christmas, it's the Savior, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Lord, God come in the flesh, and the peace He brings. The peace He brings, the reconciliation with God for all who believe. It is good news of great joy. And so to increase our joy together, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The music team, please return. Those